Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 114. Thank you so much for listening. Bienvenidos bitches and buitibinafi. Uh, Fruit Loops <laughs> is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? No, they are not. And there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Lulanda Flett, a Canadian Indigenous woman who burned down a house, killing five people inside of it. Mm. So this is more like a mass murder, but we're covering it anyway. Yeah. This subject was suggested to us by Matt from Canada. Thanks, boo. Yeah. <laughs> but before we get into it, how you doing? I'm good. I'm very excited because I was able to schedule my COVID vaccine this week and I'm super excited. That is <laughs> So exciting. So are you yeah. getting it this week? Yes, on Friday. Shit. Wow. Yeah. What, do you know which one you're getting? Uh, I think it's Moderna. Okay. Okay. 
look at you. <laughs> so that yeah. means podcasters are number are in the group one A group. Yeah. Okay. No, no it's my age group. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. I, I hadn't bothered checking until today, and uh, there's like uh, one one group one A, one B, two B, two B, according to the Arizona like I, I think C- CDC or uh, there's a, a, a government ADHS. website. Yeah. For yeah. Arizona and um, like the general population. Uh, so I can expect to get my vaccine in June. So that's not too bad. Well, actually, I saw an art- article today that uh, we should have uh, vaccines available for every American by May. What? Yeah. Because of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. That's the one so, I want to take. Just Johnson one and, and done. Yeah, yeah, that's what my son said too. He's like, I'm waiting for the Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I, okay. And we've talked about this before. Like, black people are not like, woo, sign me up for a free government vaccine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, if if it's free and it's available, I I'm, I I've weighed my options, and I believe it would be a good decision for me and my family to get, but not maybe not for everybody. And I'm not yeah. out here trying to tell you what to do, but. I personally am excited for you, Beth. I and am I'm excited, excited too. for the day that I too can be, it, it, you know, vaccinated. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Looking forward. Um, I don't have any uh, news to report other than I am so fucking excited for <laughs> Oprah Winfrey to interview the Meghan Markle and whatever her husband's name is uh, <laughs> this weekend. And I, I, I've just like cleared my schedule. I am so excited. I did not even know that was happening. Woo! There have been clips floating around on the internet. Megan looks gorgeous. There are like no question is off limits. Um, Oprah is the goat as far as interviews are concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And I just cannot wait to hear, hear her spill the tea about nice. the royal family. Because God <laughs> knows. I don't I only watched this last season of The Crown because they talked about Princess Diana, which means right. cut to Harry and then you know, I'm hoping though there will be a Meghan Markle season of The Crown someday on Netflix. Anyway, before we get there, I have noticed that the way they cover the Queen, she's kind of a bitch. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if <laughs> yeah, she really yeah. is in real life or not. In the Crown, yeah, in the Crown yeah. though. Woo. So, so if you only watched the the last season, then you didn't see the the her early life. So, was she the same? No. She was sweet? Uh, at least. Well, I don't know. I don't know about sweet, but uh, it, she evolves over time. Oh, well, at least, you know, it's the crown. So it's not it's not real. <laughs> OK, thanks for bursting my bubble. I mean, it's based on <laughs> a true story, but she might have been a bitch the whole time. I don't know. But you kind of see how she got there. Oh, OK. Well, I missed all that part. I wasn't interested, but uh, I <laughs> I uh, it just couldn't have been great. And I just, it's women's, it's the beginning of women's month and we're, you know, coming out of black history month. And I think Meghan Markle is just such an amazing black woman. And I'm like so happy that she took down a whole British empire (laughs) single handedly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Woo! 
sorry, colonizers. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so that's that's where my head's at. Are we doing right a show on. today? I don't know. All I can think about is Meghan Markle. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, let's get into some listener letters. Okay. Well, hello, angels. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, um, what's in the bag, Beth? <laughs> well, we got an email from Matt who said, Bienvenidos, bitches. <laughs> and this is the same Matt who suggested this episode. Oh, awesome. I yeah. did it right. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> so Matt says, white trans male ally here. Ooh. You all are doing an amazing job. I just binged all of your episodes in the last two weeks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Also writing from Canada, sending all my best vibes to you and your loved ones in the United States of COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just can't get our shit together yeah. over here. <laughs> A couple of suggestions of POC true crime stories from Canada that I'm 99% sure you haven't covered yet. Lulanda Flett, that's Hello. this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The Fiam family murders. Big ass news when I was 13. And Sukwinder Singh Dillon trying to get the bag in a bad way. Love oh. from Canada. Hey. Hip <laughs> hop air horns to you, Matt. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for your kind words and for the case suggestions, of course, and including the case that we're getting into today. Right. What else is in that bag, Beth? We got an iTunes review from Beiju who said, love it. Okay. I want to start off by saying there's thousands of podcasts. And if this one isn't your cup of tea, then drink something else. Heck yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I personally enjoy and can't wait for the success that's definitely in their future. Keep it up, ladies, and don't change. Oh, thank, thank you, Beiju. Beiju. Ooh, ooh. We see you, boo. Thank you. <laughs> and we got one more review. Review from Battle Vixen. I Whoa, love that name. That sounds hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they said, so different, so good. At first, I was like, why is there so much material on serial killers of color? But I was quickly taught my lesson on media bias and kept on listening. I am hooked. I loved how both Wendy and Beth go into the background of the area where the killers and the murders occur. And I even learned more about my hometown. Shout out to Louisiana peeps. Yeah. I also love that. That both ladies come from completely opposite backgrounds, but can give their opinions based on their individual perspectives. Thank you and keep up the great work. Thank you, Battle Vixen. Thank you. Oh my God. That is so kind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, God, that that one really, <laughs> really tugged at my heartstrings. Mm. Hang on. Let me get a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Well, uh, more gr more gratitude is in order because we got some new patrons and Patreons, y'all. Um, so shout out to Quinn Kiwi, Erica W, and Taylor C. Here right. are your tunes. I hope you don't hate them. And if you do, there's nothing I can do about them because it's too <laughs> late. Uh, <laughs> so Quinn Kiwi. Just hit the east side of the LBC on a mission trying to find patron Queen Kiwi. See the car full of girls and no need to. <laughs> Regulators! Anyway, uh, that's for you, Queen Kiwi. Erica W. Uh, okay, on my block where Erica is Erica for Sheezy. Probably done it all, homie, believe me. Uh, now that's a little Scarface one. And uh, Taylor C. Taylor. 
You make me feel so good. You know, you make me feel so good. You know, you make me feel so good. That's what you do. Taylor. <laughs> so thank you all. Yeah, Sorry. Thank you. Much appreciated. Your support. We can't do the show without you. And yeah. uh, we just love all y'all so much. Um, well, we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. My name is Bernadette, the host of Murderific True Crime Podcast. Murder plus horrific equals murderific. I cover some cases from the state of Maine in the United States and all over the world. Mass murders, domestic abuse, unsolved cases, serial killers, and mostly lesser known subjects. We don't shy away from the details, but we do that with all respect. This isn't entertainment. These are real people's lives, and I'm here to tell their story. Join me for my season five reboot, and together we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Lulanda Flett, a Canadian indigenous woman from a remote First Nations reserve who killed five people in Winnipeg when she burned down a house. Yes, so now we're going to get into some stats. Um... All right. So Lulanda was born in 1971 in Manitoba, Canada, or I'm sorry, in Winnipeg. Uh, she... Oh, it's Manitoba is, is the it? state. Okay, Manitoba is the state. Look, or I, they call it a pro- province. Manitoba province. There you go. Thank goodness Beth is here. <laughs> uh, there were five victims who died in the uh, fire. Rest in power, kings and queens. Their names are Norman Darius Anderson, who was 22, Maureen Claire Harper, 54, Kenneth Bradley Monkman, 49, Dean James Strandon, 44, and Robert Curtis Lafort, age 56. Um, and I, this was just my thought in, uh, when I did my research for the case was that I thought the word victim is maybe uh, a word that applies broadly in this case. Um, when you hear about Lulanda's story, which yeah. we will get into, uh, it's just sad all around. So. It is. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. 
Well, Olanda Flett grew up in St. Teresa Point, which is located about 400 miles or 600 kilometers northeast of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on the southern shore of Island Lake. St. Teresa Point is a remote Ojibwe Cree First Nation reserve. So a reserve is a land set aside by the Canadian government for use and occupancy of a First Nation group. In the U.S., we call them reservations, and they have sovereignty, even though they are limited by federal, state, and local law. But in Canada, the federal government has control over all reserves, which I did not know. I didn't either. That was a new one on me. Yeah. Yeah. Reserves were created as part of the treaty-making process with First Nations peoples. But if a First Nation did not sign a treaty, guess what? Oh, wait. uh, They asked nicely a second time? No. They were relocated to the reserve anyway. (laughs) Oh, all right. Okay. In most cases, the Canadian government put First Nations reserves in remote locations. You know, the crap land the white folks didn't want. Mm. Over 80% of the reserves in Canada are considered remote because of the extreme distances from places where basic goods can be obtained. So they were minding their own business. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> man, uh, God, that, it does just we do we we talk about the indigenous land in every single episode. And it makes me so mad that they couldn't just be like left every time, alone. Yeah. And there's some things that we'll get into in the story that I mean, these indigenous people lived there for thousands of years undisturbed, doing just fine. Yeah. Um, and anyway, uh, and St. Teresa Point is extremely remote, located on a peninsula on the southern shore of Island Lake. Island Lake has a subarctic climate with mild rainy summers and severely cold winters. Sounds not pleasant. Uh, the high in January is usually around zero degrees Fahrenheit and in July about 73. The community is really only accessible by airplane. Locally, they get around using boats, roads and winter ice roads. But to get out of the area, you're going to need a plane. St. Teresa Point First Nation is part of a larger community of people, including the First Nations communities of Wasagamic and Garden Hill and the northern settlement of Island Lake. More than 5,400 people live in the area within a 25-mile radius. According to the 2011 census, St. Teresa Point had a population of 2,871, and there were 478 housing units within the community. St. Teresa Point is the largest and most populated of the three reserves on St. Teresa Point First Nation. Prior to colonization, the indigenous people there lived a nomadic way of life in their search for food and fur-bearing animals for clothing. People from southern and northwest Manitoba would come together at Island Lake in the summer as a place to summer camp and to have gatherings. Treaty 5, also known as the Winnipeg Treaty, was signed in 1875 to 1876 by the federal government, Ojibwa peoples, and the Swampy Cree of Lake Winnipeg. Treaty 5 was signed by the Island Lake people on August 13, 1909, but only with the people that were there at the time. The St. Teresa Point elders say that the treaty people that came said that they would come back to finish the treaty with Island Lake, but they never came back. Surprise! Yeah. (laughs) Shysty. Yeah. 
Much of what is today central and northern Manitoba was covered by the treaty, as were a few small adjoining portions of the present-day provinces of Saskatchewan and Ontario. The terms of Treaty 5 have had ongoing legal and socioeconomic impacts on Indigenous communities. Many Indigenous groups that signed Treaty 5 have ongoing land claims with the Canadian government. Another issue facing facing signatories of the Treaty 5 is that the land they live on is in extremely rural areas, making access to hospitals and resources very difficult. The cost of living and transportation can be very high. In 1969, four separate communities in Island Lake were established to have four separate administrations. This was to alleviate the workload for one chief. All common interests were left intact for the whole of Island Lake, such as land history and language. Many First Nations communities have long battled addictions in the fight to improve their quality of life. And that's no easy task in a place like St. Teresa Point, where only about 10 percent of the population has employment. That's 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 really high unemployment. I mean, and when you think about it, like what what are they going to how are they going to be employed? Uh, You know, what are they going to do? Right. Exactly. Um, I it's um, you have to you can't blame them. You have no. to blame the people who created the, way the system that they up. live in. Yeah. Yes. And many live in overcrowded homes and depend on social assistance checks that aren't adjusted for the high cost of food and supplies in remote areas. They're still dealing with the effects of intergenerational trauma dating back to colonialism in residential schools. And substance abuse has arisen out of a feeling of hopelessness. David McDougall, chief of St. Teresa Point First Nation, said, quote, this is one of the symptoms of an oppressed group of people, unquote. Absolutely. It's just yeah. it's painful existing. So what are you supposed what are you going to what, you know, what are you how, supposed to do? Yeah, right. Exactly. And um, about 400 miles southwest of St. Teresa Point is Winnipeg, the capital of Manitoba, Canada. It is the most populous metropolitan area in central Canada and is the economic and cultural center of Manitoba. It's about 40 miles southwest of Lake Winnipeg and 60 miles north of the U.S. state of Minnesota. Winnipeg lies at the confluence of the Assiniboine and Red River of the North, a location now known as the Forks. This point was at the crossroads of canoe routes traveled by First Nations people before European contact, and the region was a trading center for indigenous peoples long before the arrival of Europeans. Estimates of the date of first settlement in this area range from 11,500 years ago for a site southwest of the present city to 6,000 years ago at the Forks. So, yeah, they'd been there for thousands of years, thousands of years, minding their own goddamn business. Yeah. And, and, and you, you know, and another thing, <laughs> you know, people are like Canadians are so nice, but their history is just as just problematic as, as the yeah. United States and um, America and Canada, I think. There's a real reckoning that needs to be had for the genocide and theft uh, that that has been committed on Indigenous yeah. people um, and gone unanswered for. And the problems are are um, mounting up. And it's like, y'all can't just ignore this stuff because uh, guess what? 
COVID has exposed um, the disparities that exist in brown communities, indigenous communities, but also it these the same problems, unemployment, lack of resources, lack of jobs are affecting white people, too. And right. it's now it's it's a, these despair, despair deaths are on the rise. Um, That's deaths due to suicide, deaths due to um, substance use disorder and overdoses and things like that. Um, And it's affecting white people. And uh, now they're like, we need a ministry of um, loneliness, a ministry of feelings. Like (laughs) people are like, what do we do about all these sad people? Well, there's been sad people in this this society for a long ass time. You just didn't notice because they didn't look like you. Anyway, I'm done. Uh, The rivers provided (laughs) an extensive transportation network linking northern first peoples with those to the south along the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. The Ojibwe made some of the first maps on birch bark, which helped fur traders navigate the waterways of the area. No good deed goes unpunished, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And Ooh. another thing. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fort Rouge was established on the site in 1738 by the French explorer La Verendre. Mm. French trading continued at the site for several decades before the arrival of the British Hudson's Bay Company after France ceded the territory following its defeat in the Seven Years' War. Fort Rouge was followed by Fort uh, Gibraltar in 1810 and Fort Guerry in 18. 18- <laughs> 21. These, together with the Red River Settlement founded in 1811-1812 by Scottish colonists, form the nucleus of the new city of Winnipeg, the name of which was taken from the Lake Winnipeg and derived from the Cree words Winnipe, meaning murky water or muddy water. Many Frenchmen who were trappers married First Nations women. Their mixed-race children hunted, traded, and lived in the area. They gradually developed as an ethnicity now known as the Matisse. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, It kind of reminds me of the word mestizo, um, how uh, Spanish colonizers mixed with the indigenous peoples in Latin America. And um, we're just talking about somebody who was mestizo. Yeah, Uh, that was the guy who killed all those kids last week. He was the worst. I don't want to talk about him anymore. Okay, (laughs) moving along. (laughs) The arrival of 1885 of the Canadian Pacific, the first Canadian transcontinental railroad, led to Winnipeg's becoming the major grain market and warehousing and distributing point for the prairie provinces. It has remained the headquarters of the Canadian grain industry, known as the gateway to the West. Winnipeg is a rail way and transportation hub with a diversified economy. However, um, Gateway to the West, it's a cute name, but names like that really bother me because it completely ignores the genocide and terrible things that occurred. But it's so cute. It is so cute. Get out of (laughs) here. So now we're going to get into Lulanda Flett's early life. What do you got, Beth? Lulanda Lynn Flett. Born Lulanda Lynn Harper is the second youngest of six siblings. A seventh died as an infant. She was born in 1971. Unfortunately, we don't know her exact birth date. But she was born at the hospital in Norway House, which is another town in Manitoba, Canada. Her mother gave birth to her there because at the time there was no appropriate medical facility in St. Teresa Point where they lived. A doctor visited St. Teresa Point just once a month. Mm. Yeah. um, Again, that's interesting that uh, people who lived on their own 
without the interference of old whitey, uh, for centuries, thousands of years, um, are told that they require medical care in order to uh, bring life into the world. It's it's really uncomfortable for me as as a black woman who's delivered kids in a in a right. white um, medical system, and I know they don't give a shit about me. Right. Um, and uh, it's just I I'm just trying to picture like what what it must have been like, been like for, her, yeah. for her mother and that community to have so little access, and then um, also be forced to take advantage of that limited resource and um i don't know it's just it bothers me it's sad anyway um the majority of the homes in uh, saint Teresa point have no running water and there's an 83 percent food insecurity rate i see that word i am 100 percent familiar with it but i wonder if you get food insecurity right Yes. Uh, or what a food desert is. I think some right. people think it's a myth, but it's not. It's not. Yeah. Um, food prices are 50% higher than average retail price. If you don't know, now you know. When you live in a place that is extremely remote, like you can only get there by plane, the cost of food and goods is significantly higher because of the cost of getting those things there. Yeah, Again, not their fault. Right. Lulanda's mom was a community health worker and her dad worked odd jobs to get their large family by. Her parents often drank to excess, which Lulanda herself would ultimately come to see as normative behavior in her later years. Uh, you model what you know, right? Yeah, you you have to you have to see it to believe you can be it. Um, <laughs> so I'm still working on taking over Oprah Winfrey's job. Uh, her parents' drinking often led Lulanda's older sister, Malene, to lock the younger kids in a bedroom to keep them safe from the drunk adults. The siblings would watch TV or play music while locked in the bedroom. Often after the drinking parties wound down, violence would break out. Malene would camp out on the floor by the bedroom's barricaded door to prevent people from entering. Their father would sometimes go on drinking binges to Winnipeg, sometimes staying there for months. Sometimes when their dad was on one of his city trips, Trips, their mom would go off to join him. When that happened, Lulanda would be packed up to go stay with her aunts. According to Lulanda, sometime before she turned 10, an older relative began abusing her. She says she tried to tell her mother about what was happening, but was accused of making it up so I wouldn't have to sleep over there. She also says she tried to tell her aunt, but nobody believed me, so I just stopped telling them. At around 14 or 15 years old, Lulanda was sent away from St. Teresa Point to a residential school in Toulon run by nuns. Toulon is located about 40 miles north of Winnipeg. My understanding is that the Department of Indian Affairs enrolled children in these residential schools and the families did not get to choose the school. They're her. They're horrific. I'm, yeah. I know we're going to get into it, but there's if you have an opportunity to learn or even visit, like a in uh, we are on Hohokam and O'odham land here mm -hmm. in Phoenix, and there's um, a couple museums dedicated to um, indigenous our indigenous history, and um, we've seen some exhibits um, of the Indian schools, at least the American ones, and right. I, I uh, oh. It just really, it really gets you. But um, the government paid for their room and board while, quote, house parents hired by the board of directors would care for the children. I think that should be in quotes. Lulanda's <laughs> older sister, Malene, was also at the residential school. The nuns did not allow the children to speak in their native tongue, so they had to speak English while they were there or be punished. Mm. 
not all of the kids at the school were indigenous and the indigenous kids were often taunted and bullied. A favorite taunt was, quote, go back to the bush where you belong, unquote. I wonder where those kids learned those taunts. Yeah. However, Lulanda did get good grades and she said she enjoyed school. She also enjoyed playing sports, but it was while she was at school that she first began drinking. And in 1986-87, she met a young man named Brian and became pregnant. She gave birth at a residence in Winnipeg for young mothers called Villa Rosa, but she wanted to finish high school. So arrangements were made for her to go live with a relative in Brandon, about 130 miles west of Winnipeg to complete 11th grade. But the relative's excessive drinking caused her to move back to the community at St. Teresa Point with her new baby. She still hoped to finish 12th grade and get a job at the local nurse nursing station. But according to Lulanda, I had no time for myself. I always had a baby. In 2008, then-Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper stood up at the House of Commons to apologize to the survivors of residential schools for a sad chapter in Canada's history, a period of more than a century ending in the 1990s, during which the federal government took tens of thousands of Indigenous children from their families and forced them to attend institutions. There, they were stripped of their language, tradition, spirituality, and culture in an attempt to assimilate them into the settler society. Most of the residential schools were operated jointly by the federal government and Anglican, Roman, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, and United Churches. Students were indoctrinated into Christianity and punished for speaking their own languages, and many suffered abuse. And I can't think of the documentary I watched, um, but there were grown adults describing the torture that they went through in these Indian schools, and uh-huh. it was horrendous. Um, so there you have it. Well, that's depressing. Yeah, very much so. Um, but just pain, pain, pain all around. Yeah. We mentioned yeah. that this was a painful story. Yes, it is a painful story. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So now we're going to get into the timeline. What do you got, Beth? 
At the age of 18, Flett met her husband-to-be, someone who has only been identified as B. The couple went on to have four children, so a total of five. By the time she was 22, Flett and B had married and they were living at his parents' home in Garden Hill, First Nation. According to her sister, she was an active and supportive parent to her children, but her life started to go bad. According to Flett, her husband began insisting that she drink with him, that he forced her to do so. Flett and her husband would drink, quote, super juice, unquote, a homemade brew made with super yeast bought at brewing stores, which is then mixed with sugar and water and allowed to ferment. The yeast can produce more potent alcohol than regular yeast in just a few days of fermentation. One pouch of super yeast can make 25 liters of super juice in just a couple of days. So it's cheap, quick, and easy. Sorry, I was just jotting this down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it took my recovery me a journey. I'm like, what are you everybody? Yeah, this no, down no, for? no. <laughs> no, no, no. What? But a year ago, whoo, I would have been super yeast. Okay, now how do I get now that? How do I make that? Uh, Where's yeah. the recipe? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, just a few days, huh? Okay. Um, the Island Lake area, which is a dry community, was plagued with problems involving super juice at the time. Bobby Manias, a regional youth advisor for Assembly for Manitoba chiefs once commented, quote, there's been a high rate of violence involving super juice with young people of the four Island Lake communities, end quote. And several people became ill and required hospitalization after drinking super juice. Chris Sigurdsson, an attorney who had been working in northern Manitoba communities for nearly 20 years, said, quote, you're looking at places that don't have proper running water. There's very high unemployment. It's isolated. All of those factors are going to play into addictions and substance abuse, unquote. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better myself. Who's yeah. this Who's the Sigurdsson person? Give him an award. Because uh, <laughs> that's the nail on the head. So what do we do about the pain? Yeah. Like, what do we do to fix those things? Because uh, But <sighs> we need well, to. We need to. Can Kamala Harris save this pe- This too? <laughs> I just, just, I'm assuming she's going to save Megan everything. Markle. Can Megan, Megan, can you save us? Um, so Darren, uh, Darren Wincy, a mental health therapist who worked with the federal government in Northern First Nations communities said, when they drink this, it seems that there's a much higher propensity for these people to become blacked out. And when they black out, anything can happen. Um, people would black out on the quick fermenting homebrew and often couldn't remember what they did. Blackouts are, ooh, no fun. Scary. Yeah. Homebrew has always been an issue on reserves, but brews made with regular bread makers yeast weren't as powerful. Band councils on Manitoba's north tried to ban super yeast in their dry communities, but it's easy to bring in and the RCMP can't seize it because it's a legal product. Are those the Canadian police who yes. uh, with hats? Okay. Royal the... Canadian, Canadian, I don't know what the MP is, something police. The guys who wear the Pharrell hats. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm familiar. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was, uh, so uh, we just talked about this, but they're trying to police or punish the behavior and not um, get to the root of the problem, right? Yeah. Banning banning the substance doesn't change not the pain that's there or the problems anything. that yeah. are within the communities. Um, police had a difficult task combating super juice because it's made with a legal product. And they recognize that finding someone for drinking in a dry community often takes money away from families who are struggling to make ends meet in places that lack basic infrastructure, including proper housing and plumbing. 
Okay, it's a start. According to Flett, her husband not only insisted that she drink with him, but that she also smoke weed and later crack cocaine with him. They'd smoke cannabis almost daily and come home from work over lunch to get high, she said. According to Flett, B became very abusive. She said that he would lock her in the house, take her shoes, and remove the phone so that she couldn't contact anyone or run away. She said that he often hit her with objects and also burnt her with a cigarette. They used to call me raccoon eyes, she said, because of the bruising. Flett also says that he cheated on her and that he couldn't keep a job. At one point, he assaulted her and then dragged her across a patch of rough ground. He was charged and served six months in lockup. When he got out and returned home, the violence continued and it was worse. Mm. It became a cycle. She kept going back to him. He'd apologize and convince her he'd never do it again. According to Flett, her in-laws were not helpful. They told her that the violence was her fault. No, they didn't. And Flett's kids began begging her not to go back to B. They said he was going to kill me one day, Flett said. She and B eventually did separate. He left for Thompson, a town almost 500 miles north of Winnipeg. She stayed in St. Teresa Point. Somehow, throughout all of this chaos, Flett worked at the community store and managed to get certificates in home care support work and first aid. So that's good for her. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing. That is. That is. Right on. Um, in 2009, having never claimed any federal benefits for her kids, Flett received a $14,000 child benefits check and they moved to Winnipeg. That year, Flett started dating C, who was 36 and from her community. Again, we don't know his name and all the articles just refer to him as C, but they met while uh, he was on a drinking trip to the city. For Lulanda, this was the best relationship she had ever known. She said, quote, he never hit me, he never abused me, and he was always there for me, unquote. Mm. For a time, the two were inseparable, spending all their time together. Um, man, just that quote is really, um, really gets to you, you know, um, yeah. that that's, um, that, that that's, she that, sees that's, that as good. Yeah. That he, he never hit me. So it must be good. Yeah. Um, although <laughs> I, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. No, no. And that's, that's, I think that's what's so uncomfortable about it. Right. Yeah. Is, um, yeah. Uh, Ooh, not an easy, uh, easy pair she of shoes not to walk e in. Easy yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. Although Flett returned to St. Teresa Point for a time to help fix up her mom's home, she eventually went back to Winnipeg to be with C. C had his own troubles with alcohol. He'd panhandle or borrow cash from a relative to get by. Eventually, he was living off Flett's money. When the money ran out, Flett survived on family and friends as she had no real address. C and Flett were then both on welfare and were drinking constantly. She tried to quit, prompting hospitalizations for alcohol withdrawal. Flett would then relapse to stifle emotional pain and because she was always around others who were drinking. Mm -hmm. And even though her kids begged her to, quote, take it easy, she never saw the drinking as a real problem. The way she grew up, she saw the drinking and the hospitalizations as normal. Yeah. And um, I think you you said it really you said you mentioned intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Um, and that's that's, that's an what it looks like. Yep. 
And another thing, at (laughs) at some point, while Flett was in the middle of of a drinking binge, someone made a call to Child and Family Services, and Flett's children were taken away. Um, One was already living with an aunt. Two others went to live with her mom, and the others went to uh, their dad. Flett was angry and felt bitterness toward B who she believed had made the call to CFS that resulted in her children being taken away. And um, uh, I just was going to say that this happens more to communities of color that the government um, f- just swoops co- in. Just and, swoops in. Yeah. I know I know it does happen to white families sometimes if, if you're if a kid goes into the ER and has like, what's this fractured bone from that? I, I know that they um, question lots of people, but it's it seems like it's easier for these systems with um, white supremacist roots to come in and just destroy or come in and take away children from um, their families and not even even really give it a second thought. Right. Um, I, I do understand though, that, that there was, this was trauma for the children and for Lulanda, but I think my, maybe it could have been handled differently. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. That um, she needed help. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The alcohol abuse escalated even more after the kids were taken away. Quote, I was lonely and depressed. I was angry at myself. I didn't care about myself, Flett said. Mm-hmm. She was drinking up to a 26-ounce bottle of liquor daily. She'd be hospitalized and get a Valium prescription to ease the symptoms upon discharge. Resuming her drinking habit was, quote, virtually immediate, unquote. Mm. That withdrawal is a fucking bitch. Um, I've heard. I I don't have that mm-hmm. problem, but uh, I know some people have to be hospitalized because yeah. the, of the symptoms of uh, getting off of alcohol. Like right. it, it can kill you. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess it's the only like you will think you will die of um opiate withdrawal you will you will think you can die of a panic attack alcohol withdrawal is the only it, it actually drug that will you. actually kill you when you yeah. get off of it right. um so it can be dangerous which i mean the hospitalization makes sense but your heart rate is out of control your your thoughts are out of control you can hallucinate tremors um skin crawling sweats it uh um your bowels are are out of out of, out of whack it's just it's uh it's awful. challenging yeah it's yeah. awful um flet was staying at a rooming house with C, his mother Marie Flett, and his sister Lynette Harper when she got into a fight with Lynette in November of 2009. During the fight, Flett punched Lynette, knocked her down, and kicked her. Uh, Flett was charged with assault. In July of 2011, Flett was again at the rooming house fighting with C. Marie called the police, and the police picked her up on the outstanding warrant for the assault on Lynette. This made Flett angry, and she blamed Marie. Around July 12, 2011, Flett was released from the remand center where she'd been after she was arrested on the warrant. Flett had been ordered by the courts to stay away from Lynette Harper, and she was no longer allowed at the rooming house, which also made her angry and homeless. Like, you're taking, you're making it worse. Like, there's no place for her to go. On the night of July 15th and 16th, 2011, Flett got into a fight with C. She remembers this but doesn't remember what the fight was about. But she apparently told him during the fight that she was going to burn his mother's house down. 
In the early hours of July 16th, a woman was seen using an accelerant to set fire to a couch on the front porch of the rooming house before fleeing the scene. The fire, which began near the front entrance, was climbing the stairs by the time crews arrived just after 2 a.m., so was uh, blocking the escape route. Living at the house at the time were Lynette's boyfriend, Norman Darius Anderson, age 22, Lulanda's cousin, Marine Claire Harper, age 54, Kenneth Bradley Monkman, age 49, Dean James Standen, age 44, Robert Curtis Lafort, age 56, Bradley Anderson, age 52, Marie Flett, and Lynette Harper. Is it safe to say that these were also um, Indigenous people? I think they were, yes. I know Norman Anderson was. I know Marie Flett and Lynette Harper were. Um, Marie Claire Harper was uh, Lulanda's cousin. So I think they probably all were Indigenous people, yeah. Okay. Lynette and her mother Marie had just gone to bed when Lynette said she heard crackling. She got up and saw flames under the door of her main floor bedroom. She woke her mom and they ran out of the building. According to Lynette, quote, I was screaming, Norman, Norman. I thought he was going to make it out, unquote. She said police held her back from running back inside to get him. Firefighters entered through the back after finding the front engulfed in flames. They brought six people out of the house. Of the eight occupants in the rooming house at the time, five died. Bradley Anderson lived but sustained serious injuries. Marie and Lynette escaped unharmed. The mother and daughter said everyone killed in the blaze were their friends. Uh, So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Flett was arrested in a bar on Main Street about 14 hours after the fire started. And uh, none of the articles that I read explained how they uh, knew it was her and found her. But I suspect, you know, her boyfriend, C, she -hmm. told him that she was going to burn his mom's house down and then it got burned down. So, yeah, he probably knew that it was her and uh, they went looking for her. Mm. But we don't really know. Yeah. She had to be told about what she did and the extent of harm done by the officers who interviewed her. She didn't remember any of it. Mm. Flett was originally charged with five counts of first-degree murder. The charges were later reduced to manslaughter after prosecutors concluded Flett's level of intoxication prevented her from forming the intent to commit murder. So now we're going to talk about the trial. A Gladue report was prepared for the trial. A Gladue report is a type of pre-sentencing and bail hearing report that a Canadian court can request when considering sentencing an offender of Aboriginal background. Gladue uh, is also a sentencing principle which recognizes the Aboriginal people's face racism and systemic discrimination in and out of the criminal law system. Really? Uh, And attempts to deal with the crisis of overrepresentation and inequities of Aboriginal peoples in custody. What? America! (laughs) Take notes! Wow! I'm sorry. I'm shocked at uh, how... um, forward and kind of uh fair this feels yeah i know gladue instructs judges when sentencing or setting bail to consider quote all available sanctions other than imprisonment that are reasonable in the circumstances with particular attention to the circumstances of aboriginal offenders unquote i just cannot believe this yeah Um, i know (laughs) 
Wow, a number of socioeconomic factors face Indigenous Canadians. These problems stem from the generational effects of colonization, including displacement and the residential school system, social, economic, and political issues such as drug and alcohol abuse, poverty, unemployment, and the loss of cultural identity have also been cited. Governmental policies and laws often leave these communities impoverished and disadvantaged in society. These GLADU reports contain recommendations to the court about what an appropriate sentence might be and include information about the Aboriginal person's background, such as history regarding residential schools, child welfare removal, physical or sexual abuse, underlying developmental or health and mental health issues. I'm still, I'm still, Still I'm sorry. Uh, In (laughs) addition... To the Gladue Report, a psychological report was prepared for Flett by Dr. Kent Summers. In it, he outlined the effect of the history of colonization on Miss Flett's community of origin and her personally. All right. This is. <laughs> Are you dead? I, I Yeah, I'm dead. My spirit has resurrected and that's who's continuing this podcast. Wow. <laughs> Wow. In Dr. Summers' report, he said, quote, the difficulties of St. Teresa Point, as reflected in the statistics she has provided, is a stark reminder of the very painful past of our country's first inhabitants and how the effects of that past continue today. I am particularly struck by the observation that confinement to rural reserves and confinement to economically disadvantaged neighborhoods in urban centers lead to the same results in the negative life experiences of indigenous people, unquote. I, wow. I just, Are you double I wanna, dead? <laughs> I want to, to weep. Um, yeah. I can't. Wow. Flett now realized the power alcohol had over her life. It was all about the drinking. That's how I ended up here, Flett told Dr. Summers. Dr. Summers made several findings about her psychological makeup and abilities, ultimately concluding she's a vulnerable individual who has serious intellectual deficits and only modest internal controls to help herself manage her behavior. But also emotions. He left that part. Yeah. But he said her focus on her own needs and interests over those of others is not a reflection of callous self-interest. It is an expression of her limited capacity for anticipating others' needs or reactions while being, in comparison, acutely aware of her own hurt, fear, and perceived options. Mm. In other words, Flett had intellectual challenges and a limited capacity for anticipating others' needs or, or reactions. Summers concluded that she needed help and that she is not a psychopath. He found no compelling evidence of psychopathy in her. That is, no display of traits suggesting exaggerated self-importance, callous lack of empathy for others, multiple and versatile patterns of offending, nor frank manipulations of others. He noted, however, that several historical factors associated with Flett's offending risk. These were unabated substance abuse with no intervention, chronic domestic abuse with physical injuries, emotional neglect, sexual abuse which persisted despite having tried to report it, disrupted schooling, no interventions, no treatment for mental health issues in the past. 
Flett pled guilty to five counts of manslaughter and one count of arson while reckless. At sentencing, she cried. I never meant for this to happen, she said. Every night I cry myself to sleep knowing I can't change what happened. I never thought alcohol could cause so much trouble. None of this would have happened if I didn't drink alcohol. The court accepted that Flett's heavy drinking and reduced intellectual capacity were factors that helped explain her actions. However, they did not excuse her actions. She was still capable of appreciating that something bad could happen as a result of setting the fire. The court sentenced Flett to life imprisonment on each count of manslaughter to be served concurrently and six months concurrent for the charge of arson while reckless. According to the court, her cognitive deficits would require her to be subject to supervision for the rest of her life in order to ensure the safety of the community and herself, meaning that if Flett gets paroled, she will always be supervised in the community as part of a life sentence. The judge said she considered all of Flett's cognitive challenges and difficulties in life. However, she also believed Flett intended to cause harm to the two women in the fire, even if she didn't intend the full catastrophic consequences of her actions. Flett sobbed as she was let out of the courtroom, handcuffed and feet shackled. In 2014, Flett appealed her life sentence, but the court dismissed her appeal, finding that the sentence was neither harsh nor excessive, considering her acts of deliberate arson resulted in multiple deaths, as well significant mental anguish to the victims who escaped. So now we're going to get into where are they now? After the fire in July of 2011, about 70 people gathered outside the charred Winnipeg rooming house and left behind teddy bears in remembrance of five people killed in one of the worst fires in the city's history. Relatives, friends, and some uniformed police officers attended a memorial service outside the home. Marie Anderson, the mother of Norman Anderson, who died in the horrible blaze, wrote Fled a letter. I often think about you, she said, and wonder how you must be feeling. I'm writing you this letter to let you know I I'm not mad or angry with you and that I love you even though I never met you. It is really hard for me to think about this person that I love so much that was taken away from me so suddenly. I pray that things will go well for you in court and I do not want to lay charges, but it's not up to me to make that decision. I want you to know I want to put this behind me and move on with my life. God bless you and take care. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lynette Harper is not so understanding. Quote, she took so many lives and ruined so many families, said Harper. Mm. She said she will not forgive Lulanda Flett for what she did. Evelyn Lafort's 56-year-old son, Robert, died in the fire. She said she had mixed emotions about the verdict. I realize nothing can bring my son back, said Lafort. So I guess the justice system has done what they can. She described Robert as a kind person who never had much in life. She added she didn't think she'll ever have closure. Quote, any mother that loses a child knows the heartache, unquote. A life sentence in Canada means that the prisoner is eligible for parole after seven years. We don't know where Lalanda Flett is today, if she is still in jail or if she's been paroled. But whenever she is paroled, she will be under supervision for the rest of her life. Um, so now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think uh, made Lulanda snap. 
What do you got, Beth? Well, as we said earlier, this is just a super sad story for everybody all around. Agreed. Obviously, what the Gladue report and the psychological report said about the effects of colonization, the residential school system, social and economic issues, domestic and sexual abuse, generational trauma, drug and alcohol abuse, poverty, unemployment, and the loss of cultural identity. All of that played a factor. Mm, Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, she had intellectual deficits, and I think the drinking made everything worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel bad for everybody in this story, and I I wish I could fix everything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. It just made me so sad and frustrated. Yeah, same. Um, so uh, I think full disclosure, I've I've said before, I'm on, you know, a recovery journey. And right. um, I am in recovery spaces with only BIPOC people. No Karens allowed. <laughs> no colonizers allowed. But um, there's often this, this, um, uh, the, the theme of this intergenerational trauma that leads people to abuse substances because it's painful. Right. Um, and uh, I think Lulanda's circumstances were just so difficult and it's it would self-medicating. be self-medicating. Yeah. Um, just difficult for anybody to overcome that. Yeah. Um, it makes a hundred percent sense to me why she drank. Right. Yes. Because yes. she was in so much pain. Um, and it's just really, really I can't think of another word, but shitty and unfortunate and yeah. awful that um, people had to die as, you know, as a result of of her doing so. Um, I got a little frustrated because I uh, what in my research, my research <laughs> consists of YouTube video binges <laughs> um, and a news clips and that kind of thing. And I was um, bummed out by the, the lack of culture competency so when I started to like get into the script you had already finished it so I said so then I went to go like I went to go message you and I was like you know can we um make sure that we include some information about like you know culture what we do every week but I started to type out this long message and I was like wait a minute Beth already has all that (laughs) wait a minute all right I'll I'll just uh, take a seat back. And then she hits me with this glad do business that I just found out. And oh, my God. Yeah, we need something like that here. Yeah, yeah. Although um, it's up to, I have to say that the glad do stuff is up to the court. Like, they don't have to accept that. Really? Yeah, so it's not as as uh beautiful as it sounds it's not <laughs> you mean it's not sunshine and roses no, no um, it's not rainbows coming out of our God asses damn it no. but i will tell i i will say that is a it's a start it's a and it's really impressive yeah. it's really impressive and i think yeah. um people are always like well you know it's just the system we have um but these are well, all these things are constructs fixed. right they're yeah. they're made they're man made and they can be fixed can they can be torn down yeah. and i think this glad do business is an example of that and i am just so agree oh my god that i think is the one silver lining of the story the glad do report yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
we should get that on uh some move some mooch. <laughs> I mean some merch. <laughs> Gladue. With a, um but with an ex- exclamation yeah. point. Yeah. Um but I mean can Canada Fruit Loops gang, like if if the Gladue thing is like problematic let us know before we start slapping it on stuff yeah uh because right now it sounds really really awesome my name is bill huffman and i am a former cleveland news producer and i am now the host of the podcast who killed I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So I just wanted to shout out a bunch of domestic violence and substance use assistance and mental health assistance for people in general, but also just for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, and LGBTQ folks. Nice. Because um, don't let white supremacy fuck up your healing. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> uh, so I I will put links to these in the show notes on our website. But just wanted to shout out uh, for substance use and abuse, SAMHSA. The national helpline is 1-800-662-HELP. And you can go to SAMHSA.gov. Therapyforblackgirls.com. It's, it's a podcast, but there's a lot of really great resources on how you can find a low cost sliding scale therapist or mental health professional if you are a, a BIPOC person. Um, there is a, one of my uh, buddies in one of my uh, recovery groups uh, talk, found SouthAsianTherapist.org. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I thought that was cool. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Um there is mental health resources just for indigenous communities at NAMI, N-A-M-I.org. Uh, as far as domestic violence, there's the hotline.org um, and they have a phone number, but there's also the website and a text line. Um, and you can get information by checking out the hotline.org. Ending um, Violence Association of Canada is a domestic violence group specific to Canada. Um, and I just was looking up domestic violence hotlines worldwide and there's a whole wikipedia page so full of uh links and phone numbers and stuff so there is help out there don't suffer in silence um and that's all i got yeah check out our website and find out uh find all the links that wendy has collected Yes, there's many, there. there's yes. many, there's many more. Um, I just, uh, just to give you a little taste. All right. Okay. Now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content 
by or about people of color or any true crime goodies. And I wanted to shout out, speaking of addiction and women of color, <laughs> um, uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday on Hulu, y'all. Yeah. Uh, it is so good. And if you want a deeper dive, there's two podcasts that go into this, because uh, th- that's the name of a real case, the United States right. versus Billie Holiday. Yeah. Um, there is a true crime podcast that uh, does a two-parter. Hollywood Crime Scene does a, a two-parter on Billie Holiday. And uh, Through Line, that was a fantastic episode. It dropped on October 7th, 2020. Um, but uh, it is called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Do you listen to Through Line, by the way? I subscribe to it. And I think I've listened to some episodes, but I haven't listened recently. It is so fucking good. If you want to sound smart at your next dinner party when this Rona is over and you want to sound like the smartest person in the room, listen Listen to a couple episodes of Through Line and, you know, like head on out (laughs) on the town. Everybody's going to be like, whoa, where'd you get all this knowledge? Through Line, baby. Uh, So anyway, uh, it's a good movie and there's a lot of really good podcasts out there about uh, Billie Holiday and how the United States government took down a black artist. Uh, And all also, coming out this Friday, I hope it doesn't suck. Coming to America too. <laughs> Let you so glow. I'm so excited. Uh, what do you got? Sorry to take up so much time. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so uh, my fave, Preet Bharara, has a oh, new yeah. podcast really? called Doing Justice. Doing justice. Doing justice. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Each episode is a chapter from his book by the same name. Doing ah. justice. Doing justice. <laughs> I, by the way, so this is such a, so unrelated. I'm sorry to cut you off, but my kids have started saying that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're like, oh man, just one <laughs> oh, of these shit. days, the teacher is going to be like, um, Mrs. Williams, can I speak to you for a second? Anyway, doing justice, subscribe. <laughs> so, uh, I've shouted him out before. Preet is a former federal prosecutor who served as the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017 when he was fired by Trump. Mm. <laughs> And he tells the story about his firing in his other podcast, which I have shouted out multiple times. Stay tuned with Preet. Yes. Anyway, uh, doing justice <laughs> is good. Give it a listen. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking it up right now. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. So that is the United States versus Billy Holiday on Hulu. Uh, Hollywood Crime Scene, episodes 170 and 180 about Billy Holiday and Through Line, the episode that dropped on October 7th, 2020, called the United States versus Billy Holiday and Doing Justice with Preet Bharara. Uh, the podcast <laughs> Subscribe. Um, Well, this has been fun, Beth. Yeah. But that's it for now. In the meantime, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation through the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. 
Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.